Welcome to the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Here are your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stahl. All right, welcome to Legally Sound Smart Business. This is Nasser Pasha. And this is Matt Staub. But what do we have first up today? So the first story we have today deals with another company we've discussed a couple times and another issue we've discussed a couple times. Basically, PayPal is coming out and saying they will no longer freeze accounts for crowdfunding. I'm assuming people know what crowdfunding is because we've talked about it on the podcast before, but you know, someone does some crowdfunding idea, they get this example here, you know, $700,000 all sent to their PayPal account. And PayPal has been freezing these accounts because they've been worried about chargebacks. So you know, this is kind of a problem because in this example, he's saying, you know, I need to pay my employees, I need this money, and it's all tied up. And I guess I understand PayPal's concern in the past because just the nature of crowdfunding, it's people give money, they don't get anything out of it, per se, at least not at the beginning. And they might say, hey, well, I don't like this idea. I'm just going to you know, request a refund, essentially. So this is good because it's allowing people that are raising this money to actually use the money that they raised. Yeah, absolutely. This reminds me of these credit limits that businesses, including ourselves, when we run credit cards or even ACH bank transfers and so forth, these guys always put limits on how much you can do per day and per week and per month, et cetera. And especially for a new business, it can be tough because even if you have substantial growth, these companies are going to put limits on you and you're going to be like, well, these guys want to pay me. It's good for them. Why don't they just let me exceed those limits? The thing is, PayPal gets a lot of slack. And the reason is because they're one of the biggest credit card processors in the world, second to authorize.net and so forth. But as far as what people use and have a good name to, but they always put these limitations on because they're worried about these chargebacks and these limitations. And crowdsourcing, I think we were going to cover it. Just last week, there was this guy that raised three or $400,000 on Kickstarter to write a book. And then instead, he burned all the books or something weird. Like, oh, yeah. like he didn't, <laughs> we were going to cover it, right? It was, yeah, that was, well, that was a really weird story. I didn't understand it. Yeah. He didn't. They said the pressure got to him and he just couldn't produce all the books. I guess it's probably because people paid money to help him write this book or get it published or whatever it was. And they were requesting the books and he just couldn't. But it's all money that they gave him for free. That's why I don't understand. It's like there's not really that much pressure because people are just <laughs> giving you free. It's just essentially donations. So, Yeah, he couldn't keep up with the shipping. You're right. Have you ever done any of this? Have you ever contributed money? Not online yet. I had one. I was going to do it online, but then I just ended up giving on the side because I knew the person. But And we'll still see what happens with that. But uh, I don't know. It's I'm not surprised that this stuff happens, if not more, because these ventures are frankly always high risk in the first place. But it is kind of strange for PayPal to get in the middle of that. But if they are paid by credit cards and so forth, then I guess chargeback is a risk. Yeah. And they talk about the reason they're not going to freeze these accounts anymore. They talked about for crowdfunding things are going to confirm. They basically said they're going to reach out to all the people that are going to be donating ahead of time. And that just seems like so much more work. I don't really know how they're going to handle this or how they're... I don't know. There's a lot of questions that are left unanswered, but it's a good thing that they're unfreezing these accounts. And this kind of also... I mean, this is one of Bitcoin's biggest arguments is saying because they don't have there's no chargebacks when you transfer bitcoin and once it's gone it's gone so this i'm sure they probably love to get this good news or they were probably promoting this before but this is paypal's kind of fighting back a little bit and bitcoin's a good point because one of the issues with chargebacks is that because it's very easy once someone has a credit card number 
whether someone steals your credit card number to buy something, or even the actual merchant uses your credit card number to charge something, then the only way for the consumer to get their money back sometimes is through a chargeback. But Bitcoin, once it's done, it's done. But also they try to have more security measures. I mean, obviously they've gone through some challenges recently with hacking and so forth, but usually it requires a little bit of two-factor authentication in order to log into your account and send some people some Bitcoin. Was it you who told me that you used to just buy a bunch of things and then call your credit card company and tell them that wasn't you <laughs> and you would get free things and the money back? I can't remember. Yeah, I mean, that's that's how I made my fortune in my early days is I uh, just racked up my credit cards. Actually, I just stole people's identities. It's really easy. I'll show you how to do it one time. And then just buy a bunch of stuff, sell it on eBay, and then under a different name. And it worked out pretty well. I'll retire soon. Uh, I would like to continue on with this, but I don't want to start giving bad legal advice. So <laughs> That's true. And, and also, some people don't understand sarcasm so you never know yeah and i guess there's probably a good amount of people that have never met either one of us that are listening so they don't understand our background and how we normally joke around so that's true all right first question i recently appointed a board of directors for my small corporation should i send out some sort of agenda on the issues i want to discuss before the meeting and this comes from new york city yeah we started talking about this because there was an article on TechCrunch that talked about why you should not decide anything important at your board meeting. And we'll, we'll link it to the show notes. It's actually an interesting concept. And I didn't realize this is what we do anyway, is that because there's so many formalities in a meeting in a corporate governance, especially when you make major decisions, whether it's an amendment to a bylaws or authorizing shares and so forth, you need to make sure you put that in writing. But in a real meeting sense, you know, maybe there's someone taking notes, but I don't know how many times they go through a meeting and one of our clients doesn't remember all the things that were decided there. And so that's why a lot of the discussion should happen before the meeting. And I personally see the meeting itself as a, just a formality. Yeah. But this person asks, should I send out an agenda? Well, first of all, depending upon what type of meeting it is and also what your bylaws say, almost always you're actually required to send an agenda, especially for any items that are going to be voting upon, especially any kind of changes to bylaws and uh, big decisions like that. Yeah. And the article you were talking about makes some good points. Basically saying, you know, if you have all these ideas and possibly big ideas on shifting the culture or the structure of the company, you don't want to just drop those on everybody. And I guess it's better to allow everyone to think things through mm -hmm. <laughs> beforehand if you're going to make these changes or like you said, it's more of a formality. So sometimes people are worried about just adhering to these formalities and it's almost like the actual things that are discussed are an afterthought. Yeah. It depends how big your organization is, too. This says it's a small corporation. I like to also develop the minutes beforehand and say, okay, this is what we're going to approve, and then maybe leave some blanks and some leeway, and then fill it in at the time of the meeting. Okay, what did we decide on this issue? Sometimes, of course, if you're talking about changing company culture or something like that, Maybe it can't be just summarized in one document either. It may take a little more effort. Yeah, and a lot of times, especially for these smaller companies, they know what they're going to be discussing, especially if it's a, an annual meeting or if it's a special meeting that's called. You're going to get notice and you're going to know the reason why a special meeting is going to be called. So it's yeah. most of these shouldn't be too surprising to people. You wouldn't want it to be surprising anyway, because you want to make sure it's a fruitful discussion. That's just the nature of running a meeting anyway. Yeah, and this person here, I mean, it sounds like they just might be concerned. And that's another reason that they could have chosen an LLC route as opposed to a corporation. Then they don't have to worry about it at all. Yeah, but less formality. I don't know. I don't think they were asking for that. So I won't give that <laughs> as my answer. But yeah. 
All right, let's jump into the next story we have for this week. This is a pretty interesting one. I guess this is the theme of the week is talking about companies that we've discussed a bunch of times. So this is Starbucks. Yeah. And I guess they had their annual meet. Oh, wow. This is a lot of connection. Annual meeting <laughs> uh, this past week or recently discussed a bunch of issues, things moving forward and some new ideas. And before I get into the main one here, there's some other, I think I had read about this that some of the, s- the stores serve alcohol. I didn't know that. I don't. I think I'd heard about that. but Really? I, In the I'd U.S. Forgotten. too? That's surprising. Yeah, it's just weird, but they had some other ideas. But the this main one here, at least what the article is about, is licensing its mobile payment system. Now, I personally don't like Starbucks. I don't think the coffee's that good. I go to Starbucks if I'm in a different city and it's all I can really find. So I do go there some, but I try to avoid it at all costs. So I'm not very familiar with what their mobile technology is, but apparently since 2011, they've had it in place and they've gotten a, it's been pretty successful, it looks like. So this is a really interesting revenue model that they're thinking about looking into is licensing this mobile technology. Digital wallets and digital payment systems are definitely something that's coming into the fold. But I think the problem is, is how are you going to get people to adopt it universally? And I haven't seen anyone using the Starbucks payments, but the fact that people are, I mean, I can imagine it because some of these people go every day. This is just a matter of convenience and those long lines in the mornings and so forth. It makes sense. But if those same customers are able to use the same payment system that they're used to somewhere else, then I can see it being much easier to adopt than each store coming up with their own or Bitcoin, I'm sure, has some of those payment systems, but you have to make sure that those merchants are able to accept it and finding some standardization. But this is a license, right? So just to familiarize with everyone, they are going to be basically licensing their technology, allowing other people to use it for their benefit. And it's probably going to be for a small amount of money because it's probably going to be transaction-based. I just found it interesting because, I mean, I don't think Starbucks is struggling. They've probably lost some of their market share because so many coffee places, coffee's become so popular. I know there was a big, uh, they drew back some of their stores internationally and um, even domestically in, after 2008, 2009. I'm just wondering whether it's worth it for them to get into this whole new avenue. It's probably not too much of a commitment, but it's just kind of weird how you know their whole business has been based on coffee and now they're looking into, I mean, it's just a very different revenue stream than they've been accustomed to in the past. No, that's true. Totally different uh area of industry. Especially for a Starbucks, it makes sense because people need coffee every day. And then if you have this mobile app or whatever it is, I mean, you're probably going to go get coffee at a place where you have it already set up on your phone if that's what you're used to. So it's very good for repeat customers, I guess, as well. Like I said, I've never used it. I wasn't even really, I didn't even know it really existed. But I guess for a lot of people, it's pretty useful. I've heard of it. I think they make it pretty easy. All right. We'll get into the next question here. I am the only owner of my corporation. Are there any negative side effects personally to getting a credit card for my business? And this person did not say where they're from or what type of business they're in. I'm not sure if it makes a huge difference. but <laughs> No, yeah, I don't think it does. It's a generic question, uh, a very common question because nowadays the business credit is lightening up a little bit or softening up, as they say. I just had a client, they opened up a new business and they got a 40K business credit card that came with the company when they opened a new bank account, which I think for a new account and with a good credit report, that's pretty good. But a lot of times these comes with uh, personal guarantees. It ends up being a credit hit on your personal account anyway. And are there any negative effects? I would say the same kind of negative effects there would be with any credit card. Sometimes it goes on your personal credit report. Sometimes it doesn't. I know Bank of America... Last time we had a card, it wasn't on my personal credit report, but then some of their banks are different and they will come up. So 
It also depends. And they both had personal guarantees. And then, of course, there's credit cards that don't have personal guarantees, which is something that is given to businesses that are more established. Right. And I think that's what the answer to this is, is you know, if it has that personal guarantee, it's essentially the same effect as you applying for and getting your own personal credit card. So yeah. I guess that'd be the turning point to look into on what you have to decide how much it's going to affect you. And also, by the way, when you have a business card and you're an employee, if you have employees and they're given cards under their name, depending upon how it's done, it could also affect their credit, both positively and negatively as well. Usually these cards are backed up by the company. And so in theory, they should be a positive thing for those employees. Yeah, and that's a whole other issue on giving your employees the company credit card. That's always something you see in, on TV shows and movies with you know the young employee. <laughs> I got the company credit card and spends a bunch of money. So yeah, <laughs> but I'm sure that happens all the time in real life. <laughs> yeah, I mean I I haven't experienced that with anyone, but that does happen because well they track it right. A lot of times these have different credit card numbers or they have different. Uh, somehow they're able to track it and they can see by employee what they're spending. All right, let's get into the break. We're going to talk about something related a little bit later here, but I have the number. People remember that you predicted that two people this year will get a perfect bracket. <laughs> so we're 16 games in with, I think, what is it, 63 games total? So we're yeah. a little bit in here, and there's only 0.2% of people are still in play as perfect brackets. And there's one or two upsets today. There's a decent chance that no one could be left after <laughs> today. Well, I guarantee you a good proportion of that 0.2% is in Dayton, Ohio, my hometown, with the big upset against Ohio State. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what it was. So I'm looking at this thing here that has a game-by-game, game, you know, it goes chronologically based on the finishing of the games and the, since the first game was an upset there was only 19 percent left after that first game when dayton upset ohio state actually i read another stat they adjusted it to like 90 some percent were out after the first game oh yeah but i don't know if that's true or not which makes sense because it was such a big spread on the seeds right yeah well i mean that was a pretty big upset I, i'm sure you like i said you were definitely watching because actually i was getting messages on my phone during it but it was in the middle of the day Unlike other people, I was working. <laughs> well, I was working too. I don't want to make it seem like I wasn't, but yeah, it's hard to not have a TV around at least and be looking at it. So I definitely got some slack for the prediction of two people winning. I, well, I had no idea. I thought it would be well. One thing that we did clear up, right? If there's a stat that if you just chose randomly, and then there's a higher probability that you'll get it right if you do it with some knowledge beforehand, of course. But even that yeah. probability is still pretty out there, apparently. So we'll keep track of this. And after when we record the next one, I'm going to say there's a pretty good chance that no one will be left. But I won't recant my prediction, though, because I've already made it and it doesn't hurt me to just to leave it as is. Like I said, it's 0.2%, which is a very small number, but there's probably a lot of entries. So that could be a decent amount. It's still a decent amount of people. Yeah. But we'll see. No games are going to finish while we're recording this. So it's not going to change, but we'll definitely keep updated and stay tuned next week, I guess. <laughs> very good. March Madness. All right, let's get into the next story here. And this deals with the manager of an LLC. And I guess more specifically, indemnification and advancement. So basically what it was, was this took place in Delaware. There was the manager of this LLC. He wanted to quit and did quit. There was some lawsuit that was involved. And this is a story with a Delaware Corp. Well, it's actually an LLC where... Quite a number of entities are filed for a number of reasons, which I think we've discussed. Because of that, there's this Delaware Court of Chancery that deals with a lot of these corporate issues, and they're in the forefront of the corporate law. And this is what everyone looks to as far as this. And they have such a history of law in this 
that it becomes very predictable. And one of the major provisions in almost every operating agreement, both for an LLC and also for corporations for their officers, is that the company will indemnify them in the event of a lawsuit. And I think there's a good reason why we're covering this too, is that the language in this particular operating agreement said the company shall indemnify, defend, and hold harmless. So let's go from a basic perspective. Indemnify means that they're going to reimburse that person for any damages that they may be liable for if it's in the course of the indemnification clause, in this case, the extent permitted by the act or applicable laws, and so long as there's no fraud or bad faith, et cetera. But then it also includes a word defend. So the company shall defend and hold harmless. So the question was, does that mean that the company has to actually advance the cost to that manager in order to defend? Or is that afterwards? Or how does that work? Yeah. And this is particularly weird, at least I thought, and I think they address this in the article too, but the advancement, and it ended up being they had to advance all the costs for all the issues. But the way it was worded was, in the event of fraud or bad faith claims are asserted against such manager or officer, the company shall nonetheless bear the aforesaid expenses. So if there was a fraud or bad faith claim asserted against the manager, they had to advance the costs. But then the company was arguing if it was just a normal lawsuit, then they didn't. It was just really weird how that was set up. You would think it would almost be the opposite. At least I thought so when I was reading it. Yeah, it's a very subtle, you know, and this is why we're, we get kind of geeky with this language of these contracts because the subtlety in these verbiage can really go either way. And clear language is very important. Yeah. And that's what they ended up deciding too, was they looked at this clause. We'll link it if anyone's really interested in reading reading this identification provision, which probably no one is. But they basically said it, you know, it doesn't make sense for them to not include all costs or advance all costs. And it kind of turned on the word defend as well. There's a reason why you want your managers and officers to be protected is because, okay, they're out there you don't want them being held personally liable because it it really affects how they're able to do business and you're not going to be able to recruit that good talent to become an officer or manager. And especially for yourself too, if you're the owner of the company and you're appointing yourself as an officer, you don't want to be held personally liable and so forth. And so having the company indemnify you for that is very important. Yeah, exactly. I know we've touched on this before, but these indemnification provisions are one of the most important things in any contracts. Yeah, no doubt. Don't shrug it off. In fact, the people that negotiate these down are the investors, of course, because they want to make sure, because a lot of times these investors aren't necessarily managers or officers. So they want to make sure that the officers and managers take responsibility. And so they limit the indemnification clause as much as possible, like in this case with fraud or deceit. All right, let's just jump into the last question we have for this week. I fired one of my employees for not wearing green on St. Patrick's Day for a promotion we had. Should I be concerned with a lawsuit? Um, California. (laughs) It's such (laughs) an odd question, right? Yeah, there's probably going to be a problem with this, I would think. (laughs) First of all, I want to know where they work, if it's like the Shamrock restaurant or something. I don't know. That's true. I mean, they. Or Starbucks. They're green. I assume it's not Starbucks, but okay. The CEO is emailing us whether they're going to get fired or not, or whether it's going to be a problem. It's kind of a weird question, right? Because why are you firing your employee just because of what they wear? But I think there's something else more going on there, right? They're pretty much terminating the employee more for insubordination because the assumption is, is that they told everyone to wear green on that day and they did not. This is a touchy question because I think in general, there would be no problem with that. But I can see an attorney making a clever argument. 
Basically, this is the rule. You can fire anyone for any reason so long as it's not illegal. And I know I've said that before, but it's kind of a weird way to put it. But the point is, is so long as you're not doing it based upon their gender or something, some protected class, like their religion and so forth, then it's fine. But in this case, what if the argument is, is that the employee doesn't want to wear green because, I don't know, they're religious and they consider St. Patrick as a saint and therefore it's a religious holiday or something to that effect. Then maybe I can see an attorney arguing that. But in general, I mean, we've even covered in the past, you know, you can fire somebody for being fat. You can fire somebody for how they look or how they dress. And so these are sometimes comes with the employment. We've talked about many of those other like Hooters restaurants and things like that, that have an exception because of the type of restaurant they are. But this is not that because this is, has nothing to do with sexual discrimination or anything like that. They're not talking about whether they should wear dresses or not, but just a color. And you're right. It's, uh, I just think maybe you probably shouldn't tell them that's the reason he's firing him because they didn't wear green on St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, it may just cause complication. Well, I think the real reason is insubordination, right? Right, I mean, that's, right. And you're fine with that. This reminds me of a few years ago, there was this law firm and it got a lot of press that a big group of their paralegals and clerks and so forth, every payday, they would dress in orange. And they would do that because then afterwards they would go to happy hour and they would all look alike and so forth. It was just something that they did. And then for whatever reason, the managing attorneys didn't like that because they would wear orange. And they thought that they were protesting or kind of ganging up or making a point about it. And according to the employees, they weren't. But there's this weird exchange where literally the attorneys ask one of the persons about the shirts and they're like, okay, well, this is we're not part of any protest or whatever. And they're like, okay, well, they go back to the meeting room and they come out and they just fired everyone that was wearing orange. <laughs> literally, literally like 10 people or something to that effect because of that. And of course, they're a law firm. They, you would assume that they've done their research and they, I don't think there was any liability there. I'd never heard of that. That's pretty crazy. Well, there's also interesting uh, question of whether or not they can file for unemployment because usually unemployment is not allowed for those that commit misconduct. Now, wearing an orange shirt is probably not misconduct. Sometimes insubordination to a certain extent can be considered that, but I don't think that's the case. And I don't think this person here being fired for not wearing green, which is an unfortunate work environment, but... Yeah, need to learn. I can see if, okay, we have a promotion going on. Okay, everyone wear green tomorrow. It doesn't even matter if it's St. Patrick's Day or whatever. Everyone wear green tomorrow. We're going to have this or whatever, and someone shows up not wearing green. I'd be annoyed. All right. Well, let's get into the last story. And I kind of teased it during the break. We do have more March Madness. Nice. And this deals specifically with the brackets themselves. A lot of people do brackets and a lot of money gets tossed around too. And this is basically saying how, and it's no surprise, free to enter contests like Warren Buffett's, for example, are legal, but pay to enter contests are not. And this makes sense, right? (laughs) Yeah. One's gambling and one's not. Yeah. It's no surprise. And I I don't know what to think. I don't know if it's... I would think that most people that are involved in these pay-to-play contests, and a lot of them are office through pools, yeah, yeah. the office ones too, if they sat back and thought about it, I would think they would have to know that that's probably not legal. But maybe they don't think about it. I don't really know. Yeah, but we all know it's not legal. But have you heard of one person being fined or arrested because of it? Probably not. Yeah, and that's kind of the thing is... I read a bunch of articles about this just because I was interested in it. And it's is it legal? No. Are you going to get caught? I mean, probably not. Who's going to find out? And what's going to happen? Someone's going to be upset that they didn't win and go report you to uh, yeah. <laughs> go report exactly the company who. and then you you get in trouble. And even then, I'm not condoning 
doing illegal things, but I just... What would also be interesting is if, what if the person that's holding the money for the pool doesn't give it to the winner? That's true. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Now, if they keep the funds, then, okay, well, there's an issue there because that's stealing. But what if we're in a pool and then I win, but then the person doesn't give me the money, they just return all the money to them. And if I try to sue, like, look, this is my money, I won. I don't think I'd be able to enforce the contract or that agreement because it's an illegal agreement. Yeah, I agree with you. That'd be the case. So, but this is more of a a logic thing or reasonable reasonableness thing. It's it makes sense that this is yeah you know gambling's illegal unless you're in Nevada. It's I mean that that's just common sense. But also know like if you are having as a company any kind of contest or sweepstakes, it's not enough to just not have people pay to enter. Every state has regulations and laws regarding these types of contests and sweepstakes. And so if you notice, even with the Warren Buffett, obviously there's a lot of money at stake, but they have quite a bit of legalese that's going with that. And every single advertisement is going to be compliant with every state. I don't even think that contest is actually eligible in all states. And they even have other strict restrictions too. You have to be over the age of 18. I think you even have to have, there was some rule in there that you have to have a cell phone contract or phone contract. And the reason is because they want to be able to call you during to let you know about the winner and also into it's trying to get some information regarding uh, selling mortgage loans and stuff like that. So all these things come into play before you do so, especially if you do a national campaign, it's actually pretty tough to get compliant. But if you want to do it, Nevada, Delaware, Oregon, and Montana are going to be your best shots. Everyone knows about Nevada, obviously. That's pretty common, but Delaware, Oregon, and Montana are other good states. Or international waters, too. Just take a boat out there. I've heard that's pretty good. Yeah, that's true. Okay, well, that's our episode. Thanks for all your questions. We got some interesting ones this week, I think. <laughs> you can always send them in at info at LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com and, of course, at our website as well. Or ask at LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I'm new here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Ask at LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com. I think info will go nowhere, so don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. Like I said, we'll uh, keep everyone up to... I'm very curious to see how many people have perfect brackets when we do this next week. At least two. So you're not going to go back on your prediction. I, I'm going to go out and predict that by the time we record next week, so it'll be next Friday, there will be less than two people with perfect brackets left. Really? Wow. How many teams will be left at that time? So it'll be Friday morning... 12. There'll be 16 after this weekend, and then half of the games will be played by Friday morning. Yeah, so 12, I believe. All right, well, we'll see. Well, my alma mater won at San Diego yeah, State last so night. Yeah, so Dayton, San Diego State's been a good tournament for you. By the way, did I tell you I'm, I have a perfect bracket right now? Did I tell you that? I forgot. I'm one of those 0.2%. I, I don't believe that. No, well, I filled it in this morning, but it's perfect. <laughs> I fill it in after every game is completed, so I always get a perfect bracket. <laughs> exactly. All right, guys. Well, have a good week, and thanks for listening. Yeah, keep it sound and keep it smart. This has been the Legally Sound Smart Business Show with your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stop. The Legally Sound Smart Business Show is your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Legally Sound Smart Business is a podcast that is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date, and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening or submitting questions to the podcast. The podcast does not constitute legal advice, but rather is offered only for general informational and educational purposes. 
you should not act or rely on any information in the podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney. The opinions expressed in the podcast reflect the views of those individuals and do not necessarily represent the views of any other individual or business. For more information about the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, visit LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com. All right, welcome to the podcast. That's it. (laughs) How are you guys doing today? No response, huh? Okay. Well, let's get started. Thank you for joining us in this week's uh, podcast episode, Legally Sound Smart Business. There you go. I like I like the second introduction better than the first one. A lot, oh, a, okay. a lot warmer. It was a little more formal, huh? Yeah. Okay. How many teams will be left at that time? So it'll be Friday morning. Um, let's see. 32. It'll be, let's see. There'll be 16, 12, I think. Yeah, 12.